Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Coming up on this week's show, the Amiga Mini is finally here. A Nintendo 64 Classic is reborn. And we get the inside story on Earthworm Jim and Shiny Entertainment with David Perry. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, one book you should look out for coming very soon, a reprint that's due this May, is A Guide to Japanese Role-Playing Games, a real deep dive into that genre featuring more than 600 classic titles. You can read all about that and the rest of their retro gaming range on their website at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 319, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to this week's show where we get an excuse to dork out about classic video games for the next hour-ish. Normally more like an hour and a half, isn't it? And of course, we take you behind the scenes on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming and technology over the last seven days. There has been a a certain product that I've got in my hand, actually fits in one hand, that has actually took most of my attention up over the last couple of days. I'll talk more about in just a bit. But of course, we are going to be chatting about all the big news stories over the last week and a very special guest on the show, as always. Now, actually, the guest that we've got this week We're going to be crossing over to California to catch up with someone who we've actually wanted on this podcast since day one. I've wanted to speak to David Perry since I was a kid. I remember watching um, Bad Influence and seeing the kind of sections with David Perry on there. And and we are, he's known as Dave Perry as well, but we didn't want to cause any confusion with the uh, Games Master host. He's the absolutely (laughs) amazing developer of Disney's Aladdin, Cool Spot and the Earthworm Gym series, which for me, were groundbreaking games. Like when Aladdin Mm. came out, it was really like, wow, Disney has actually hit the consoles and the computer systems, and they've done it really well. The animation on that was just stunning. Do you remember that one, Joe? Yeah, man, I loved Aladdin. Like Aladdin was the one that they famously actually got like the actual artists from Disney in, didn't they? And they like hand drew like a load of like the cells and stuff in the game. So I'm really looking forward to listening to this one because you guys jumped on it. And it, Aladdin is like an amazing Mega Drive game. And it was like the third top selling Mega Drive game as well. So I, I know this one's going to be an absolute killer episode. Now we've done, you know, we did an episode actually all about those Disney games with um, William Anderson, mm. who worked with um, David like God, a few years ago, now, probably about two or three years ago. And that was a really interesting insight. And I remember, you know, you mentioned a couple of others there, Ravi, that, you know, are maybe slightly more obscure, but I was a massive fan of Cool Spot. And that was a, uh, it was kind of that era when brand-based games mm. were coming in. They, they, they were called gladiators. Adver Games at the time, yeah. which was that kind of cross between advertising and, to be honest, Cool Spot was the best. I I remember there was a load that came out that were really bad, but uh, Cool Spot was actually a decent title. And I didn't know of him. You know, he was a seven up full stop, wasn't he? I I didn't know of him until the game came out. So kind of exposed the whole character to me. You know, without getting too off topic, I remember like Fido Dido was Mm. a a mascot for seven. I didn't know whether 
it was different in the UK or the US. I always thought maybe Cool Spot was more the American kind of mascot, but obviously when the game came out, we, we all associated it with Seven Up. But he also worked with you know that Global Gladiators game for McDonald's that he worked on. Oh as wow, well. really? It was that era when you know suddenly it just felt like big companies finally got gaming. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, like you said, he did Aladdin and Disney suddenly took gaming seriously as well. So it was a real big change in the industry. And then, of course, I mean, we get into him setting up Shiny Entertainment and we focus a lot on the Earthworm Jim games and Earthworm Jim 1 and 2. Absolute classics. And, you know, I say in this interview, that playing that game actually felt like you were playing a, a Warner Brothers cartoon, didn't it? It was crazy. I had the art of Nick Bruti and they kind of worked together. Nick's been on the show as well. And I I just loved the advancements in that. You know, it was quite late on in the uh, Mega Drive's life. And, oh, my God, Earthworm Jim and Earthworm Jim 2 as well. Just such innovative level designs and kind of ideas that went into that game. Yeah, so we're going to be chatting to uh, David Perry. Um, oh, actually, we've got to say thank you to David because he lives in California. You know, he actually went on the roof and uh, sat his satellite dish up because he's on Elon Musk's Starlink testing it out. So uh, if you didn't do that, we couldn't have done this interview. So we, we appreciate the effort, David. Uh, we are going to be getting the inside story on all those classics with him on the show in around half an hour from now. Now, we have got something in my hand that um, a lot of people have been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Can you think what I've got in my hand, Joe? Is it a Nokia 3310? <laughs> it's not a Nokia 3310. It's the Amiga Mini, isn't it? Of course it's the, the Amiga, Amiga Mini. Mini. Woo, it's finally here. Well, it's not quite here, is it? It's, it's finally in reviewers' hands, isn't it? Yes, I mean, I've had this for, um, I've actually had it for about two weeks. Oh, wow. Um, the guys at Retro Games Limited were kind enough to send it over, and hopefully we're going to have um, Darren from the team on the show for a bit of a chat next week ahead of, you know, the date comes out. Um, he's at GDC, so hopefully we can make that work. But yeah, the sent this, you know, a few of us have got it, and um, by the time this episode comes out, my YouTube video should be up. I mean, I thought I'd let, you know, the big YouTubers get their, theirs out first, you know, 8-Bit Guy and Perifracting <laughs> and all that. You know, I'll come along with a smaller fry video that no one will watch. But I, I'm really impressed with this. Now, you know, people are maybe you're not regular listeners, might not know, but, you know, the Amiga is definitely my favourite platform of all time, you know, since I got my first one when I was like 11 years old, I got my Amiga. So I've always wanted something like this, because, I mean, there's been this trend of, you know, everything's been miniaturised over the last few years, the Super Nintendo, Mega Drive, the NES, PlayStation. Even even the Turbo graphics, and, like, you know, yeah. there's been some quite odd ones, and I think the Amiga kind of fits into that category of... Um, Maybe the lesser known ones in other countries and stuff. But um, mm. yeah, I, I think it's going to be good because I noticed when the Turbo Graphics came out, there were a lot of people buying it that had never used the system before. So hopefully this will open up people to the world of Amiga. Well, that's what I'm thinking as well, because I mean, obviously it was a big system in Europe, not so much in America, um, very big in Australia too. But the, the thing about the Amiga is, you know, because that many different companies kind of own a piece of the pie, legally it's very complicated which is why I think something like this hasn't been possible until now. Yeah. So it's incredible that the finally, I mean, you look at this machine here, there's no Amiga branding on it. But it's, it's called the A500 Mini. It's amazing that they actually got it out because there's yeah. so much stuff about the licensing of the ROMs, the operating system, yeah. the name, the logo. Oh, God. it's It's been a lawsuit kind of nightmare, the Amiga story, and that's uh, prevented a lot of kind of, you know, developments and stuff. So I, I'm so happy. This is like a, a little dream for me to have a, uh, 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 an actual Amiga product going into the shops. Yeah, that's the thing. You're going to be able to walk into, you know, a high street retailer and buy an Amiga again for the first time since, what, 1995? 
which you know is a massive achievement in itself. Uh, and if you want the review of it, you know, condensed, obviously I'll post my YouTube video, but it's going to be, it's about half an hour long. So, you know, I kind of go into all sorts on there, but it runs amazingly well. Because um, I know, you know, when the C64 Mini came out, there was a few complaints about, you know, controller latency and that kind of thing. Nothing like that on here. You know, I've played a bunch of the, you know, there's 25 games pre-installed on it and they all run just as well as they ever did on an original Amiga 500. And I think for me, you know, because there's a lot of stuff I, I played all the time as a kid. you got another world on there. you got Chaos Engine on there. That were games that, you know, my brother and I, you know, in, in that pre-internet era, that's all we do. Every night we probably spent a thousand hours on those games. So I know them like the back of my hand. So I can tell, you know, if they're running well or not. And actually, they run amazingly well on here. Very cool that you can put a USB stick in and load your own games on it straight away as well. Yeah, some of these um, systems are locked down, aren't they? So like, yeah, they are. You know, the Nintendo ones were locked down and uh, they were kind of a certain selection of games. But this one seems quite open. Um, well, what, what do you think about it, Joe? What do you think it sounds like? Is it something that you'll be picking up? Yeah, no, I've already said before, um, I, I really want to get my hands on one because of one, it turned out my wife used to play one as a child, which I never knew. Like, you know, in the six years we've been doing this show, she never... We should have got her on to be... Yeah, I know, we should have got her on for her first impressions and stuff. But I'm, I'm really unfamiliar with the Amiga. I've only ever played them at your guys' houses, you know, briefly. So I'm, I'm really excited to get a hold of one because I'm kind of like, I guess I'm, you know, we all thought I was kind of the demographic. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm the kind of person it's aimed at. Like, somebody who's interested in retro games or kind of has an interest in the Amiga because they want to know more about it and hasn't got the time or the know-how to sit and set one up. Do you know what I mean? And um, we were actually talking to Ashley on the Patreon hangout the other day and he was saying he's going to get one for his brother because it's perfect for him because he he loved it as a child, but he hasn't got the time once again, you know, to be playing around with an Amiga, you know, in 2022. So it's perfect for people like that. So I'm, I'm really excited to get one when they go on retail. Well, well I've seen, um, so we've had one at Amiga Addicts as well, which is the magazine that I work for. And um, I've seen like that they've done the menus really well and mm. the kind of customization with it is great. Um, the ability to kind of add 10 megabyte extra fast RAM, well, eight megabyte and a two meg chip. It's it's really good. So you'll be able to play like a huge selection of games. And uh, what's the system it works on, Dan? It's a WHD load, isn't it? Yes, I mean, which is, it's a system that's been around for a while where really what you can do is you can put games that were originally made on floppy disk and install them on a hard disk, or in this case, you know, on a ROM. And, and multiple um, disks as well you can have on one yeah. one selection, yeah. And I'll say it's really quick. You you load like Pinball Dreams from the menu, you're in the game in like two seconds, straight on, really, really quickly. But I, I think, you know, Joe made some interesting points there as well, and you're right, I mean, because the Amiga was a computer there's a lot more involved to emulating mm. it than there is something like a Mega Drive, for example. So what I'd say about this is, yeah, it is. It's an Amiga for console fans. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you run like. the applications on it and, like, do your old paint programs and, and stuff like that? Not easily, but you can, Ooh. and I have. Ooh. Yeah, Ooh, it's, it's already <laughs> already being hacked by Dan Wood. Yeah, it's a bit round the houses, and it took you know, I had to actually go in and kind of manually edit some files and stuff to get it working. But I did get it booting Workbench, and in my video, I'll link up, you know, run DPaint on there, uh, a word processor, the old Say program, you know, the speech synthesizer that we all made uh, swear words in as kids, yeah. you know. So that all runs fine on here. So, you know, the Amiga emulation experience could, does go beyond that, and I run some scene demos on it as well. Got a lot of those working great on here. The tank mouse as well, which if you listen to it, this is included mouse with it. Listen to those nice clicky buttons. 
it's a recreation of the original mouse, which I said last week, and I wasn't a big fan of it as a kid. But actually, this is smaller. It's about three quarters of the size of the original. And I think this is actually comfier than the original version. You know, it fits nicer in the Well, hand. I think that 8-Bit uh, Guy made a really good point, which is, you know, I think it's like £115 that it's selling for, but you yeah. are getting a mouse that you can use on your PC as well as on the Amiga and a controller. So, mm. you know, that does justify it a bit. Which I've got here, the controller is kind of like a, a shrunk down CD32 controller, but actually they've took away all the stuff that we didn't like about the CD32, like you know, that awful D-pad. <laughs> that was terrible. That was like a, just a disc with bumps on, wasn't yeah, it? On like CD32. It hell. So you've got a proper D-pad here, and actually, no, it feels nice and responsive. I was playing, so I'm more a joystick guy on the Amiga, but I must admit, I was playing a lot of games and actually playing them, you know, <laughs> well for me, you know, I'm not the best gamer in the world, but I actually had no problem playing it on this uh, con- control pad, which normally I'm more of a joystick guy. Um, the buttons feel nice. It actually feels a bit like, you know, the other side of it where you've got the action buttons, very similar to like a, a Super Nintendo controller. And, and you mm. can remap and that, that as well. So like up, up to jump was the kind of awful thing on the Amiga for a lot of games that a lot of people aren't really used to. So uh, being able to remap that to a button is just a game changer, really. Yeah, because up to jump works fine on a joystick, but trying to do it on a pad is a nightmare. But you can do that. And, you know, you mentioned before about changing the RAM configuration and that kind of thing. Quite cleverly, they've kind of, there's two, like, stages of uh, preferences in there. You either get the basic just, um, you know, do you want to use mouse, keyboard, and remap the buttons? Or you can turn on, like, a, an expert advanced mode where you can go in and do all, all that kind of, you know, change your RAM and all that and um, the copper and the blitter and all that. You can change a lot of stuff, put it in kind of turbo mode, you know, for the more demanding games. I will say, though, I did try to run some, um, which obviously this thing's not designed for, but I tried to run some of the, um, you know, the top end, like, 060 demos and stuff on there, which it struggled with. Yeah, I I, I can imagine it's going to struggle because it's got a, like, limited kind of CPU. But another thing that I saw as well was it had um, four save slots. So games that you you can save on these WHD load games, but games that don't have the save function, you can do a kind of, like save state i guess and you can do that four times which i think is really interesting and that's for each game as well every game has four oh, wow. save slots individually wow. so yeah and and they launch you know yeah like you said it saves the game where you are next time you launch it it's literally click a button and you're back where you left it off so i think you know i'm, I'm looking at this and this is going to go next to my ps5 in my living room obviously it outputs via hdmi plugs into my modern, you know, 65-inch Sony telly. No messing around. I just think it's a great little machine. I mean, I'm going to see my brother in a couple of weeks, and he's like, you've got to bring that up. And we, you know, a bit of two-play lemmings and stuff after a few drinks is always fun. So I think it's going to be a great little party system. And, yeah, I think just having an Amiga back out there again, and hopefully it'll be, you know, a good gateway to kind of get people into it, I think, especially, you know, guys like you, Joe, that are more of a console background. So, yeah, my review is thumbs up. Yeah. Very I, I, I think so. it's definitely for somebody with like a console background. You know, I've got six yeah. Amigas. I, I don't need more. But <laughs> uh, people who kind of, you know, just interested and 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 just kind of spot it as a as a kind of compulsive like purchase. You know, that could be good. That's it. that's what I say in my videos. I mean, a lot of people, you know, have seen it on Facebook comments like, "Oh, you could just get a Raspberry Pi and emulate on that." It's not for people to do that. This is for what I think. Yeah, it's someone who either has been curious about the Amiga or had one 30 years ago. They walk into Asda, see it on a shelf, and they'll be like, oh my God, I've not thought of the Amiga since, like, 1992. God, Chaos Engine, I remember that. Oh, I'll buy that. That's the audience I think they're aiming this at. Yeah. And hopefully that'll yeah, bring so. more people to the scene, and then they'll go and buy the classics and stuff like that. 
before you know it. Yeah, you're listening to our podcast. You're, you're buying a meager addict. You're spending thousands of pounds on eBay. That's how it all starts, isn't it? <laughs> Slippery it's a gateway slide. drug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you watch all the good videos on it so far, I'll, I'll link mine up as well. You know, there's a little bonus in the in the show notes at theredshirthour.com. Now let's move on to something else not Amiga related uh, because this is actually a really cool little racing game which looks right up my street actually. This is a retro arcade racer um, called um, Slipstream, is this? I've not played this one before. Is this, was this a PC game previously then? I think it's a brand new game. Um, oh, okay. It's a brand new game which is coming out on April 7th for Switch, PlayStation and Xbox. And I, and I did think of you guys actually when i saw this one because of i don't know if you've seen it ravi but it's very reminiscent of it it kind of like reminds me of like lotus challenge and top gear and stuff like you know from the early 90s yeah. but Is then it-, it kind of in between that and the original need for speed for the playstation a uh, bit of ridge racer maybe yeah as well. a little bit of ridge racer yeah. looking but um, kind of a very outrunny intro as well where yeah. like they're driving along the beach but then yeah, it's got yeah. that like Japanese kind of car feel as well. Yeah, a hundred percent. So funny enough, it's actually coming from a Spanish indie developer called Bitworks, um, and I'm looking forward to this one. But it, it is essentially an old school arcade racer in the vein of kind of like that 1990 era era, isn't it? And, mm. and I and I really I really like the look of it, you know. And it's got like the, all the local, you know, multiplayer split screen up to four players. Um, it's got like rewinding time in it so you know that you can crash really badly and burn out and stuff like that on it but, <laughs> i need that yeah <laughs> i need it as well and you can you know you can rewind up to five seconds and it, it looks pretty i don't know I, I i think the graphics look really really nice yeah it's i've played one that was a kind of recreation which was um a horizon chase turbo and that mm. was done in the kind of modern shader kind of style graphics and a bit cartoony where this feels really hand-drawn pixels like yeah it's everything got the, feels really defined and yeah i would agree it's, it's got a, a real kind of like like you say hand-drawn look to it and i think it's got a really nice kind of like miami vice that kind of miami you know gta vice city kind of look to it you know that real 80s look to it and all the cars are kind of in that vein inspired by classic models yeah yeah inspired by but never quite a ferrari or anything like that yeah um a ferraro yeah um but also the soundtrack as well there's like nine exclusive songs um which actually by a synthwave artist um stefan moser i think his name is efro yeah 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 Yeah. so you know and you know it's got all like the graphical options like crt uh scan lines and stuff like that and there's you know it isn't just single player and multiplayer there's like grand prix mode cannonball mode grand tour mode um, time trial battle royale and there's like 20 tracks and five different cars so it it looks like a real labor of love it feels like very low down so like the perspective of where you're looking Mm. you're looking quite low and the cars are like quite quite you know uh, sporty and low and it gives me a kind of a I don't know, Ridge Race the Wipeout kind of feel as well you see it you see it for me it reminds me of the games I listed off earlier on, like the original Need for Speed, and oh, I, I, I think it's top, it's it's definitely a Mega Drive or a Super Nintendo racer, which it looks really similar to. I, I think it might be Top Gear. The you know the, I think it came out in like ninety one, ninety two, but it's really kind of captured that kind of look for me. Uh, yeah, but I'm I definitely know, I know what you mean out. with the uh, Need for Speed kind of. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I I think this looks great as well. I mean, actually, graphically. It's got like, you know, sprite scaling 
mm. and stuff in there as well. It kind of reminds me a bit like how the Mega CD did it, or even the Atari Jaguar actually did quite nice yeah. sprite scaling. Yeah. So it kind of reminds me of that. In- kind of interesting. Bit. Apparently, it's actually built on its own its own like graphics engine. They've actually yeah. they actually built it themselves. Like it's like a custom one. It's not like based on any other game or anything like that. They worked with um, a Brazilian developer called Ansdor apparently to make it. So they've built it from the ground up, which I think is pretty cool that they've managed to do that with their own game engine and capture that feel and look of it. And it's interesting that they've opted for local multiplayer as well instead of online, which yeah. is yeah. Uh, quite cool. I kind of like that. You know, you have to physically get people into your house. Yeah, and, like, yeah well, it's perfect for down. me because me and, me and my wife is a gamer and she gets frustrated when we haven't got games to play together. So whenever anything like this comes out, it's it's always perfect because it's something for her to play with me and it's retro. So Yeah, but you just need to put a bit of cardboard on the screen to split it so she can't see what you're doing. <laughs> and I'm pleased as well that it's not just, you know, cause there's been so many, and, you know, some done very well, but so many kind of outrun kind of rip-offs, you mm. know. There's one I play on my Switch here, 80s Overdrive, which is really good, and I've got outrun on, you know, Sega Rages and stuff like that, but I kind of feel like I've played that kind of genre to death. Having something like this is actually, you know, it looks a bit more kind of early to mid-90s kind of area, and especially, I'm looking at some of the graphics in here, you know, because it is kind of some polygon kind of graphics too, and you've got these kind of um, little polygons that your your skid marks around your tires and stuff like that as well. That kind of reminds me of something maybe the 3DL or the PS1 would have yeah. done, or maybe even N64, and that, and that, you know, and that, that kind of... And that's where that Need for Speed kind of feel came from, because yeah. that came out on the PlayStation 1, but I'm sure it was on the 3DL or CDI was, yeah, yeah. at first. Yeah. So that's straight away what my kind of mind went to. So yeah, This, this would have been the Saturn's killer killer game, killer yeah. app, this one. Yeah. <laughs> See, so yeah, it looks really cool. That comes out next month. So if you want to get hold of it, I'll link it up in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to be talking about this incredible new uh, Capcom announcement in just a minute and an N64 game that is back for 2022. And, of course, that chat with David Perry coming through soon. Just let's take a second, though, to give a massive thank you to uh, the people who make it possible for us to do the Retro Hour podcast for you each and every Friday. And that is you, our wonderful patrons. If you're not part of the community so far, honestly, we'd love to have you on board. Uh, Join us on Patreon. I mean, you know, we've got three different tiers. Starts on the price of a cup of coffee once a month. And you'll be part of the Retro our community and get invited to things like the monthly hangouts that we do that are always such a giggle you know actually i was looking because i posted a picture because i haven't took any screenshots of recent hangouts so i posted one from like what you know one of the earliest ones that we did back in 2020 i think there was like six people on and now we get like what 30 40 at its peak yeah we really need to update that picture because they are a lot busier now which is amazing and also i've got like a really big covid beard like lockdown beard (laughs) which i don't have anymore so yeah but really like you say the patrons are the lifeblood and we absolutely love that you guys you know put your hands in your pockets and help the show out um but also one thing what we do want to take advantage of with the patrons is we actually do have a really big project coming up soon which uh you're talking about the project the project the project which we are going to be announcing in the i don't want to put a a, a date on it but we're going to be announcing it soon and we're going to be any day now and we're going to put it to the patreons first and get get their thoughts and their feedback on it and stuff like that um so you know you'll be you'll be in the know there is if you do sign up as well and help us with it as well. Mm. I, I, I think, you know, I don't want to give too much away, and some people might be able to guess what it is, but, you know, this is probably the second biggest project that we've done after the podcast. Yeah. 
hundred percent. Yeah, and it, but there's it a, a massive lot deal for that us. goes on behind the scenes at the retro yeah. hour, and you know, yeah, <laughs> y- your opinion, you know, we value it as well. So it's it's really good to have you guys on board, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, so if you back us on Patreon, you're going to find out all about that very soon, and uh, help us with it as well, actually, because we do need some uh, some of your feedback too. And also, if you join this weekend, if you're a gold member or above. You're going to get to hear even more of us guys because we've just dropped a brand new episode of our second podcast that we release every single month just for patrons called the Retro Hour After Hours. And this one, loads of fun. We concentrate on retro handheld systems. I'm going to so talk you love, you know, all about the Tiger Electronics. <laughs> it's your favourite. Don't, don't give it away episode. that that's your favourite. There's <laughs> two hours of that. Well, if you love, you know, the game gear, the links, all this classic. So we really go in depth on that and give our favorite games as well. So however you want to support the show, we hugely appreciate it. But if you'd like to back us on Patreon, you'll find all the details at theretrohour.com. Come and join the Retro Hour community. And of course, if you join us on Patreon, you're going to find your space in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. I feel like we need some music for the Hall of Fame. That's a good idea. Let's do that. Hall of Fame. (laughs) (laughs) Ravi's jingle there. Uh, So let's give a huge thank you to our latest supporters on Patreon. A massive thank you to Mike Lewis. Keelan Smith. And Luke Carter-Key. Who all joined us on Patreon inside the last week. Thank you so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. And if you'd like to join them, all the details are at theretrohour.com. So it seems to be a bit of a thing at the moment that we're getting these, you know, massive collections of classic games. Of course, last week we were talking about, you know, Konami and the uh, the Turtles Cowabunga collection. But it seems like Capcom are not going to be outdone by that. They've announced a new 10-game retro fighting collection that's coming soon. Right up Joe's street, this one. Yeah, this is right up my street. So this was announced about a week ago. Uh, and it's going to be coming out on June 24th, you know, on all the big consoles, Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch. But what's really cool about this is it's going to be 10 classic fighting games. And what's pretty cool is, like, it isn't, like, eight of them a Street Fighter 2. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I thought when I first read it. Yeah, I was like, yeah. That, that's Capcom's bearings. usual trick. But what they're actually doing is, I don't know if this is the first time they've done this, but the Darkstalker series, um, there's five games of that. I'm not too sure if you guys are familiar with it. I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're very Street Fighter esque, but they're like you play as a lot of um, famous pop culture kind of like monsters or kind of inspired by monsters. So like Frankenstein's monster, and there's like a Dracula character and a mummy character. Um, there's even like a little Red Riding Hood character. But they were really popular games like in the nineties. Is it like an anime thing? Is it ish? It's got a street. It looks like Street Fighter, um, but you yeah. you play as like monsters essentially. Um, but the Darkstalker series, there was actually five of them, like, you know, throughout its lifetime. Um, and all five of them are going to be coming to this collection. So you get Darkstalkers, Night Warriors, Vampire Savior, Vampire Hunter 2, and Vampire Savior 2. I love the, the naming of that because they've all got, like, um, you know, little sub names. So it's like Darkstalkers, Sub Night Warriors, but then the next game is called Night Warriors. So it's one of them ones where, you know, it's difficult to keep up with. Um, but I don't believe they've ever been in one place at once or at least kind of like in a modern release. So that's really cool. Um, you then also get a fighter called Red Earth, which is apparently the first time it's ever been on home consoles because I've never heard of this game. No, um, I'm not familiar with And that. that looks like, I mean, obviously these are all, you know, one-on-one kind of fighters, you know, like Street Fighter. They're all you know, kind of beat-em-ups. But Red Earth looks kind of like a little bit like a Conan the Barbarian, 
like caveman. I can't really describe it. I don't, I don't know enough about it to talk about it enough, but I want to get my hands on it. It looks pretty cool. Um, and there's Cyberbots. And then, of course, there is... Str- was Cyberbots a Saturn game? Am I right? Uh, I'm not too sure. Um, right, once okay. again... I, I think I plugged it on the Saturn. Yeah, it might have been. But, I mean, I think all of these started as arcade games and then, obviously, they've mm. been ported. Like, the Darkstalkers game is on the Saturn and on PlayStation and stuff like that. Uh, but it only says Red Earth is the only one that's never been ported to home consoles before. So you're probably mm. right about Cyberbots. And then you get Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo, Hyper Street Fighter 2, and then you get Super Gem Fighter Mini Mix. Um, so quite a cool collection. And we know Capcom like to, you know, kind of jump on these. I don't want to call it a cash grab because of it's pretty cool that they've got these different games on there for once, like Darkstalkers and Red Earth and stuff like that. Um, but it's got all you know the usual kind of features. It's got online play, obviously um, couch play, um, and then there's extra features on there. There's actually a training mode, and then there's like um, obviously the museum in there as well, where you get kind of like all the hand drawn artwork and all the kind of like the arcade wow. cabinet artwork which you unlock from playing the games. And like there's like four hundred like music tracks that you can unlock and listen to and stuff. So you know they don't just chuck it out there on Xbox and go give us your fifteen quid or whatever. I don't know how much it is, but. Um, probably more than 50 probably more than that yeah as Gabcom but you know it's nice it's, that, be full price that it's nice that they they do these things and it's interesting like I say that it isn't just like eight Street Fighter games you know they've kind of dug deep and put some other games on there so I'm looking forward to this one as well you know it's cool though because I mean you know nothing makes me rage like a one-on-one fighting game and losing, which, you know, out of all the genres of gaming, that's the one that frustrates me the most. When your friend's next to you and they absolutely kick your ass at a round. Yeah, well, it's, that's usually me Seriously. with you. <laughs> so, like, literally. This no, is, not a Mortal Kombat, actually. No, you? yeah, true. <laughs> this is a total, like, new area for me. I've not heard of any of these titles apart from Super Puzzle Fighter. Uh, well, surely you've heard of Street Fighter 2. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Street it's Fighter 2. Like, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, not Hyper Street Fighter 2. So these are all proper, like, mad arcade ones then yeah 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 absolutely and you know the dark stuff games there is a big big fan base for them there but they I've, i don't think they're anywhere near as mainstream as like street fighter but like i like to see myself as quite a big fighting game enthusiast and i've never heard of red earth and don't really i've seen Cyberbots, but i've definitely never played it and don't know what it's been ported to and stuff so like I say, they've they've really dug deep for this one. And it's not like it's like oh they're running out of games because of the dark franchise. You know like I say it's a well loved franchise so looking forward to this one you, you know what though it's weird to me looking at the list because they've picked some very niche games on there but there's no like you know i thought like x-men versus street fighter you know the marvel versus capcom games might be on there but yeah mentioned uh, you know it, and it's interesting that you say that because if it hasn't they haven't done a compilation of like the marvel versus street fighter games or anything like that yet, as, as far as my knowledge goes and you know capcom mm. versus marvel i don't think they've done any big compilations of them or anything maybe they're keeping them in, there and them in their back pocket for next time or something but you were right about cyberbots it is a, it is a sega saturn game damn okay. i had to check yeah. so uh, it's a japanese exclusive um sega saturn game so we did get it in the arcade in england but not on console not on playstation or sega saturn only and if you got a hacked one like yeah that. there you go <laughs> <laughs> you know because a lot of people are saying about this so they're like oh yeah capcom it's cool that they're doing a, a fighting collection but where's resident evil we want that yeah i know focus off that in a lot of the articles there's a lot of people crying out for the original yeah. resident evil trilogy to be you know not even like remake because obviously they've all like been remade now but 
just put them out. Just put those ones out again. I'll buy them again for full price. And- some new news about Resi. Because we keep hyping stuff, like all these rumours, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. Since this is a Capcom article, you're like, right, this is it. And then, no, it's, yeah, a, yeah, it's, it's a fighting game. game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it does look cool, though. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be out in June. Bit of a wait, but obviously we'll uh, we'll hear pricing on that before then, I'm sure. If you want to check out the trailer, I'll stick that in the show notes, too. Now, a game that's... Um, Maybe a little bit forgotten by some people, but definitely a bit of a cult classic on the Nintendo 64, a game called Glover. And you, this is by the Oliver Twins then, was it? I didn't realise this yeah, was Yeah, so um, originally it was by the Oliver Twins. Um, yeah, it says that actually on on the remake as you kind of look at the trailer. Um, it, it It's pretty interesting, Glover. Like, I, I remember seeing it, but not really playing it that much. And it was like N64 game and it's, being remade for modern PCs and uh, improved and like all the graphics have kind of been redone. But um, yeah, interesting concept, a kind of glove that has a personality and that can walk. And I don't know if this is a a kind of connection to the Oliver Twins and Dizzy because uh, he's in a world called the Crystal Kingdom. And of course there was a Crystal Kingdom Dizzy as well that came out. It's it's a puzzle game then. So I, I've not played this one before. It looks like um, yeah, a bit a mixture between kind of a a platformer and a puzzle game. Well, I think the idea is that you're this kind of glove character that's a bit of a platformer, but you can smash stuff. You can control these balls and like um, kind of basketball style, get it around and uh, y- yeah. So so pretty much it it's a adventure puzzle platformer. Um, and the idea, all genres, yeah, yeah. The idea is race of fighting. <laughs> yeah, the idea is, as Ravi says, you you control the ball, and I think I, I've never played them, but I'm familiar with the game. I think you have to get the ball to the end of the level. That's the idea, but you kind of have to clear the path, if you will. You know, like clear the stage of enemies and clear the puzzles, so you know blocks move out of the way and stuff like that. Interesting. It looks like a really Japanese game. But then, like you say, it's by the Oliver Twins, and um, so it isn't. It's obviously, I'm assuming, a British game. Yeah, yeah. I, fi- I think it's um, kind of when they went into the PlayStation era, and you mm. know, a lot of these studios mm. kind of improved and went 3D. But um, I love the simplicity of it. it. It feels like Monkey Ball or something yeah. to me, kind of, or never ball. Yeah, if it, it, it looks like it would confuse me because I'd want to think I'm controlling the ball, but you actually control the glove that's then smacking <laughs> the ball about and stuff like that. So, But this comes out the 20th of April, um, and it's coming to Steam and what else is it coming to? To COG as well, is it? Gog, yeah, good old games. Gog, uh, yeah. Store as well. It's PC only interesting now. Look yeah. at this and I'm thinking. Looks this perfect well for the Switch. Switch. Yeah, 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 100%. That's my first thought. Yeah, especially so with it being an N64 game. So, Yeah, or maybe, I don't know if they're going to put the original out on the you know, the N64 emulator on there maybe or something. Yeah. But seems like they're missing a trick. I mean, it might just be, you know, PC first and then maybe down the line, depending on how well it does, I imagine. But um, yeah, it looks a cool game. And obviously they got rid of all the kind of the, I'm looking at the original version side by side. Mm. On YouTube, they've got rid of all, you know, the, the blur vision and the fog and everything from the N64. <laughs> yeah. is. It's a lot sharper and cleaner now. So, and, uh, uh, yeah, interesting little concept. Yeah, interestingly, it's coming out on a, a 420 as well, which <laughs> is is quite interesting. And uh, they asked Pico and they said, why did you pick the day, uh, you know, the 20th or the 4th? And they said, uh, pick that day because it's a fun slash funny date. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to check out the trailer and uh, everything we know about that so far. You'll find it all. And the rest of the stories, of course, I put them every week. Open your podcast app, look at the little uh, show notes in there and scroll through them or we put them all on our website at theretrohour.com. Save your Googling around. 
Now, we're going to be chatting to the wonderful David Perry, the inside story on the Earthworm Gym Games, Disney's Aladdin, what a game that was back in the day, Shiny Entertainment as well, and lots more. He's coming up in just a moment. Before that, though... You guys are probably sounding quite chilled out this week. You're off on holiday on Friday, Joe. Day this comes out, you'll be in the car, heading away for a week of relaxation. That said, you are going with the, your wife and the kid, maybe not so much relaxation. And the in-laws and my sister-in-law. Yeah, oh Def- definitely not. You'll be ready for a holiday when you get back. <laughs> I'll be ready for a holiday when I get back, but I'm super, super excited for it. And I also need to make sure that I do look nice, prim and proper, because it is also the oh. father-in-law's 60th birthday. It's going to be lots of photos. And uh, there is a way. That I can uh, I can look that way, isn't there, Dan? God, you're good at this. Yeah, I'm getting all right at this. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is our wonderful sponsor, our friends at Harry's. Now, you've probably heard us talking about Harry's before. The fact that they are, you know, they're a super sharp razor company. Think about Harry's is though, they're actually more than that because they want to revamp your whole routine. Now, everything from, you know, close shaves to flake-free hair and a way to give you nice, clear, healthy skin. Their mission is Harry's want to help guys feel good. Now, because we're good mates with Harry's and we want you to try them out, maybe you've got a holiday coming up as well, we're giving you a chance to get a free travel-sized shower gel with a trial set and try out their other products as well. So, you know, you can check out more than just a shave. So what you get in this trial set is you get the expertly engineered weighted handle, one five-blade cartridge created by artisans in their own German factory, complete with a precision trimmer as well. You get the handy foaming shave gel for effective lubrication. You also get a travel blade cover for your adventures. You know, finally the world's starting to open up again. Maybe you've got your... So many people I'm talking talking to right now are saying i'm going on holiday i'm jumping on a plane for the first time in two years this summer mm. uh, including me and, and i know you're as well ravi soon yeah I, um, i'm gonna need a shave for sure and this uh, looks quite ideal and it also comes with some uh, shower gel as well so i can have a wash you do free shower just your whole morning routine you know what i love as well having a shave in the shower you know how efficient is that that you can get out and enjoy your adventures as well so we want you to get involved in this obviously support the podcast by supporting our sponsors take up this offer now all you have to do is cover the three pound 95 for delivery and you will get your own shower shave kit that you can take with you on your travels this summer so head to this website harrys.com slash retro to have your set delivered and start a shave plan and your freebie is going to be added at checkout so please check them out and a big thank you to harry's for their support of our show head to harrys.com slash retro right next we get the inside story on classics like earthworm jim aladdin the story of shiny entertainment heading over to california to chat to this week's special guest the wonderful David Perry, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite part of the show where we get to welcome on a very special guest, a veteran of the video games industry. And our guest today definitely deserves that title. He's worked on so many incredible games on so many different platforms as well. We're going to get into all that, but let's welcome him on the show first of all. Welcome, David Perry. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm in California right now. Where are you guys? Oh, we're in Nottingham in the UK, so I imagine it's a bit warmer in California than it is oh, here. Oh, it's beautiful today. Yeah, it's sunny. You could get a suntan here. <laughs> You're not making us jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, going back to, you know, pre-California, I know that you grew up in Northern Ireland. I mean, kind of going all the way back to the beginning. I mean, do you remember the first time that you encountered a video game? And what was that kind of early scene like when you were really young in Northern Ireland? Well, when I was young, um, I was in school in Belfast and they wouldn't let me actually have access to the computers. And as a kid, that's 
that's means that you really want access. Like, so I, uh, first chance I got to get into that room, um, they sat me down in front of a ZX81 and I can't say that I was playing games. They were, you know, they would make me, um, just type in like, you know, what is your name? And then it would say, hello, David and things like that. That was enough to get me started. So, you know, maybe that's the worst game ever, but that, uh, just getting you, so that you can input something and see something back. You start having ideas of what, you know, maybe I could do an adventure game or something like that. Um, but but I basically, um, you know, with that little ZX81, my mother ended up buying me one for home and um, and I started making games on it. I mean, uh, games are just so much more fun than anything else you could do. So it was, it, at the time, um, everything was, was being sold through magazines. So it was such a great way to learn how to type because I didn't own a cassette player. So I, I couldn't actually, rec- I couldn't save anything. So if I wrote, if I typed in a game, I could play it, but then I'd have to at some point turn off the machine and, um, and then I'd have to start again. So I, it, it was such a great way to learn how to type games in, but, but at, at that point I wasn't really buying games. So everything I was playing was just from whatever was in a magazine. And they were all pretty basic to be honest, because you're typing the things in, but, um, you know, back then you had no internet, you had no TikTok. And so based on, on, you know, doing in those, you know, the way in America, they call it chores. What do they call it in England? I've forgotten the name of it when you're. Yeah. Kind of like things you need to do around the house. Like yeah. chores. Yeah. Yeah. You do yeah, that or, or do you, do you play games? Games win every single time. In the schools, did they like have lots of spectrums and stuff like that? Was that the kind of set up there? And was there a book that was like essential or were you just totally going out of magazines? Well, it was magazines to start, and then there was this book came out um, from Dr. Ian Logan, and he he did some incredible books on teaching you how to program, and um, and there were some other people as well. But in school, what happened was I happened to be at the right place at the right time, so the government um, put a whole bunch of computers in our school. And, and think about that. The teachers don't know how to use these things and they don't have the time to work it out, but we do. So um, there were actual situations where I was sitting at the front of the class teaching the class and the teacher was sitting in the front row. I kid you not. Um, and, and it's because we learned how to use the stuff really quickly. But behind the scenes, there were a few other people that were actually doing it pretty, they were pretty interested in games too. And so um, I've always found that that you can learn faster when there's other people interested. Um, like, you know, mm. if, you're, if you're into something and someone else is into that thing, you somehow riff off each other and you learn even faster. Um, and so that that's what we were doing. But yeah, I was just, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Computers became a thing. The school supported it. Um, and, um, you know, I was, I was ended up getting interviewed by the BBC, uh, you know, um, in school, like, cause they were interested in this idea that kids had access to computers. So it was, it was actually an interesting subject to them at that time. Nowadays that they, you know, they could care less, but those days that was, that was a brand new thing. these little kids are, are working and programming, um, computers in school. Well, I know you started publishing your own games through magazines. I mean, how did that kind of work? Well, yeah, what, what happens is you can imagine you're, you're doing this and you're thinking to yourself, well, maybe I wonder if they would print one of my games. And so I sent my games off and, you know, finally this check shows up in the mail and, and I kind of went, wait, what, you can be paid to, to do this. This is, you actually make money doing this. And, uh, and then I thought, my goodness, I could be doing an awful lot more games. I have a lot more bandwidth, um, cause I don't need to sleep. So I will uh, stay up and just keep typing. And, uh, and, and then 
once you start making money that way, because if you think about it, I had nothing to spend it on other than sweets. And so <laughs> it was like, I became <laughs> like the, you know, I had a backpack of sweets everywhere I went because I was, I was making these games. Um, but, but what was fun was the industry started to change a little because I was in Northern Ireland, which is not really where the video game industry was. It was more in the United Kingdom. And so if you think about it, it was a little harder to get any traction there. So um, I found myself printing games in magazines, which was fun. Um, but but then ultimately, the, one of the publishers reached out to me. It was this guy called Tim Hartnell. And he reached out to me and said, look, um, I'm, I'm doing a book. Would you like to do a chapter in the book? And so I ended up getting a chapter. And then he ended up coming back and saying, look, I'm going to, I'd like to do a book with you that's, that's going to be put into, um, into all the sort of WH Smiths and, you know, the high street stores. And, um, that was kind of fun. So I did that. That's and, pretty, uh, amazing at that age. And I, I was just wondering, yeah. like in Belfast, were there any computer game shops or, or arcades or anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, the arcade, uh, the, the the one with the good machines was the airport. <laughs> I had to go all the way to the airport to play like Star Wars, you know, because they had one. Um, they had um, uh, Dragon's Lair, um, which was also cool. There was a place that I found near my school that I could walk down to that was a bar that they didn't seem to mind us coming into that had Pac-Man and bumping buggies or whatever that one was, you know, the one where you jump the car. It was so much fun. But so, so basically wait, I, I had access, but not great. Um, and then we discovered that there was uh, a university near us um, and they had this sort of common room where you could go to. And of course we weren't supposed to be going in there, but we we just snuck in and they had Phoenix, Donkey Kong country and missile command. So you know, that's pretty good, right? That meant, you know, uh, I'm in Ireland, but I got access to some some decent arcade games for the time. On Phoenix was incredible. I remember getting to that end level and you'd have to kind of shoot through that little band to get to the alien in the in the UFO. Oh, the hours I spent on that game. I still I still have so much <laughs> nostalgia for that stuff. I mean, I love Phoenix. Yeah. So, yeah, it was the the joke really was in in uh, the joke I tell here in in California is that in Ireland they say it only rained twice this week once for three days and once for four days. Uh, <laughs> in, in reality, as you know, the weather isn't that great, um, especially in in Northern Ireland. But um, it meant that I did get a lot of time indoors, and so I got a lot of time um, playing games. And you can imagine when you're playing games and thinking to yourself, I could. You know, imagine you've just typed the game in and it says lives equal five. Um, you can you can say to yourself, I wonder what would happen if I changed that, you know, to lives mm -hmm. equals 10 and you play and boom, you've got 10 lives. And so you start to, in a way, hack the game. You're starting to learn how they're structured. It, it takes away the mystery. Now, it, this is not the case for people in, in America who are buying, um, you know, consoles with just joysticks on them because they didn't ever get to see the code. So they never typed anything in. They were plugging in cartridges and playing. So in a way, I felt very lucky that our experience through the Sinclair machines was always keyboard-based and always touching and looking at code. Um, I think it was very helpful to those bedroom coders at that point. Um, it definitely got me started. Yeah, I think there's a whole generation that probably got started, you know, even just like on the Commodore 64 as well, like peeking and poking into RAM to see what you could change on screen and change the games. 
Yeah. I mean, you could do, you could literally do anything. And so mm. what happened anyway, long story short was I, I thought I knew what I was doing and I got offered a job to leave school. So I never even finished school to, to leave school and go to over to England and work for Microgen. And at that time, I thought I knew what I was doing. But when I arrived there, I realized I didn't know at all um, how professional you know, real games were, were actually created. And so I had this emergency situation, whereas I need to learn this really fast or they're going to work this out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to get sent back to school, right? So it became like this emergency. Uh, you know, and there was a guy there, Chris Hinsley, who was really good. And, and um, I got to look at his code. And it was, it was, at the time, it was like drinking through a fire hose, Literally, um, you know, the, the, the amount of information I was trying to, to download, but, but getting to see how real games worked was a complete unlock for me. And, um, you know, I, I, I was lucky because one of the first tasks that, well, the first real task they gave me was, was to take his game, which was Pajamarama, um, which was cool at the time, and take that over to the Amstrad, the Amstrad CPC, and doing that it meant that I got to see the code and it also meant that my first game got like 10 out of 10 because <laughs> it was, mm. it was a good game in the first place for its time. Um, and so, yeah, learning, learning from, from other people, that was just so critical. And then, and so I, I made it, I survived. They didn't, they didn't throw me out of the building and I, I got to stay and make more games. You know, that move from Northern Ireland over to England, I, I was reading that um, and you wanted to be a Concorde pilot when you were a kid and your mum wanted you to, to be a dentist. So obviously that was quite a big change. I mean, how did you kind of convince your mum to let you do this? Yeah, my mum at one point worked in a dental office and I, I wasn't I wasn't excited about that. She ended up working for British Airways. And so um, as a kid, I was always fascinated by being a pilot. That was the thing. Um, and it turns out I'm six foot eight. And six foot eight is actually a problem. I didn't realize this at the time. So I got a chance to go and sit in the cockpit of Concorde and I couldn't. And the reason I couldn't is because it's not designed for people that are six foot eight. I just didn't fit. And so oh, wow. it, it was, a, it was like the best day. Imagine how great a day that is. You're going to go sit in the cockpit of Concorde and, and you want to be a pilot and that's the dream pilot job. And then you realize because of your physical body, <laughs> it's not, oh, not going to happen. They're not going to change Concorde ever for taller pilots. So, um, so that was a bit disappointing. Um, um, I, I did. I remember coming away just shaking my head, going, "You know, woe is me." So, what am I going to be now? Um, the game, the game thing uh, again. I uh, long story short, there's a guy who uh, who talks a lot about, or he's, he's passed away now, but he used to talk about finding your element. And how hard it is for people to work out what they're built for. They end up doing what their family did because that's it's just easier than trying to work it out what you're actually built for. But people are built for something. And um, I think in a way the game industry found me more than I found it. If you know what I mean, it's sort of it's something that just fits. And you uh, you become dangerous because you would do it for free. And uh, I think that's that's a really good sign that you've you've found something that you like is if you're if because that makes you hard to compete with if you're willing to work for free. And, and uh, uh, I guess you must have been into flight simulators as well. But oh my god, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scion flight simulator is so crap, but I loved it. <laughs> like, like there's some dots, and and you know, in my mind, that's the the world. You know, I see dots moving around, and uh, it was not. 
And I still like even today, I, I downstairs, I have a whole rig set up. I have Boeing controls and everything for uh, Microsoft's flight simulator, which is finally back, um, which makes me happy. Um, but yeah, no, I love all that. Years ago, when I came to America, I, I bought a, a sort of a video that said how to be a pilot. And the guy in the video said, if you want to be a pilot, stop watching this video and go book a lesson, <laughs> 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 which I thought was hilarious. So I did. And, uh, and I, I reached out to different flight schools, but one of them on the, on the, in the, on the list was actually, um, a helicopter school and, and they ended up calling me up and saying, what are you doing for lunch? And I'm like, well, I'm eating my sandwich. And the guy goes, do you want to fly a helicopter? And, and so I, I said, sure. And I went to the airport and he took me up and, uh, he, he did that perfect sales pitch on me. So when you're a gamer, usually your hand-eye coordination is good. And so he's like, you know, you've got really good hand, you know, hand-eye coordination. I think it would be so easy to teach you. It won't even take very long. <laughs> and I'm, of course, eating all this up. I'm sure he says this to everybody, but I'm eating it up. And uh, and I ended up signing up and, and learning how to fly helicopters instead of airplanes, which was kind of kind of weird. But, um, but it's, uh, you know, helicopters are cool too. So, um, yeah, this is something that, it's kind of it's kind of great how video games have evolved because the flight simulators these days, like the the Microsoft one, is incredible. Yeah, you can live out your dreams in that. Um, totally. Yeah, you also wrote Three Weeks in Paradise. Um, yeah, what happened with um, Three Weeks in Paradise? So imagine I've just uh, done Pajamarama. I now know how code works. I had uh, I'd been given one more like, hey, why don't you try making a game? And I made this thing starring a baby. Which, interestingly, it was called Herbert's Dummy Run, and it was part of the series. But what was funny was that I ended up making a game starring a baby, which is about the dumbest thing you can do if you know that the audience is mostly male and um, and somewhat hardcore. And, you know, hey, I've got a game where you, you get to play as a baby. Um, and you know what's so funny? I did the same thing again many, many years later, making a game called Messiah, <clears throat> and um, in Messiah, you play a baby, and it was like, well, what is wrong with us? <laughs> like we're trying to get, you know, the first person shooter audience to, to to play a game starring a baby. It was a bad move, but yeah, after that came um, after that Herbert game, there was Three Weeks in Paradise. So there was a little secret to that, which was um, there was a limited amount of space to put your games on the spectrum, and there, there was a guy um, in our office, Andy Laurie, who was a bit of an electronics whiz and he worked out how to actually create a little cartridge that you could plug into the back of a spectrum and it would it would give us more memory than anybody else so it would be a completely unfair um thing to you know to for a normal game developer to compete against us because we had more memory than they did and the idea was that when you buy your game you would get this little little plug-in dongle thing that would plug into the back of your spectrum and mm. so Three Weeks in Paradise was actually built for that. And um, <clears throat> it was kind of fascinating because um, I built the game knowing I had more room. Um, but so, there was another game called The Shadow of the Unicorn that was made by someone else in the office. And he got to launch first. And so he launched first with this thing. It was called the Microgen Micro Plus, which was these little device. And boy, those are rare. I don't even have one. Um, I got to hunt one of those down. Um, but those that device, uh, it, it ended up um, that game wasn't successful. And so um, the the 
managing director of Microtin just came over to me one day and he said, um, you're not getting the extra memory. <laughs> and so I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I can't, this is impossible. Um, and so I ended up having to take the game and just, just hack and slay bits of, uh, bits of it out to get it back to normal size. But what actually occurred was that the game, I think, got better because of it. I think you, you cut out the, the weaker parts and keep the best bits. And in a way, the whole thing became more potent. I think I learned mm -hmm. a lesson from that. And um, and that game was very well reviewed and did very well for MicroGen. So Yeah, sometimes less is more, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. Well, how did you start working with Probe Software? So um, uh, imagine you're with MicroGen and everything's good. I'm trying to remember what, what it, at, the, at one point they came up to me, like, I think it was probably, I, I think it was uh, Three Weeks in Paradise. It was selling really well. And the at the time, the managing director came up to me and he's like, this is doing really good. And he, he opens up his wallet and, and gives me like 100 pounds um, out of his wallet. <laughs> and and it, it's funny because that, I find sometimes you have to be careful because if you try to, um, motivate somebody saying, here's a hundred pounds. In reality, what you're actually doing is demotivating because you know that the product is so much bigger than that. Um, like mm -hmm. it's running the company, that's your core product. And at the time it was just, I was thinking to myself, look, I think I can build my own company, um, and do this myself. And I don't really know if I, I want to stay here. Um, and so, um, I had finished one game, which was um, Stainless Steel was a game I'd made there. And then I, I finally um, exited. And what happened was, I, you can imagine now you're at home on your own, no company, no salary, and you've got to work it all out. And I, I was doing some things for Elite Gaming, which was at the time a pretty cool company. And then what happened was um, I got this chance to go and meet Fergus McGovern, who sadly passed away now, but Fergus was running probe software and I went in and met him and um, they were making a game called Trantor, the last Stormtrooper. and the lead artist on it is a guy called Nick Broody and Nick was a freaking Jedi. And so I thought this is my opportunity. So they said, why don't you make that on the Amstrad? We already have it being made on the spectrum. So why don't you do it on Amstrad? So what actually happened was Nick and I ended up, finishing the, the Amstrad version before the Spectrum version. So we kind of pulled away and completed the game. Right. And then Nick said, you know, like, I want to work with you. So let's form a team. And that became, you know, we worked out of my mother's house and we set up like a room with benches and we, we just, it turned it into a little studio. And that's where we made games like the Terminator and, you know, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and things like that. So, you know, we were able to just, just kick the games out. Um, really quite quickly um, and probe loved it so they loved that relationship of i need something done these guys will get it done <laughs> and it, it, it yeah. seemed to last a long time like i don't want to jump forward but uh you guys both worked on earth with jim didn't you because uh yeah he, he yeah. was he was on our podcast as well and uh singing your praises yeah a really good guy um no, nick's a, nick is incredible super super talented well, you also worked on, as you mentioned, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and that was such a huge franchise back there. You know, uh, Turtle Mania was uh, kind of a lot of pressure, you know. Yeah, I, I kind of joke because in England, uh, they censor it to Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles because the word ninja yeah. is just too scary for kids. <laughs> and I always like the Spanish version, Tortugas Ninja. 
um, which is is cooler. Um, but no, what happened was I I got to make this game that really taught me the power of branding. So by putting the the turtle's name on your game, suddenly you're number one, like your game's number one in the in the charts, and, and everybody wants to work with you. And so my career really really jumped every time I got involved with something with a brand on it. And I think that was so enlightening at the time. Um, I, Nick and I once made a game together. We were just, you know, riffing and came up with this idea for something called Crazy Jet Racer. And the, the media started to pick it up. And what happened was um, Virgin came to us and said, we have the rights to Dan Dare 3. And Dan Dare, as you know, is a British, uh, uh, was a British comic book. And so Dan Dare was, was a license and here we were trying to create something with no license and we just agreed to do it. And we renamed the game and, and sort of made it into, into Dan Dare 3. And as a result, um, I think it actually worked better and it, it introduced us to Virgin. So now we suddenly have a relationship with Virgin Games and, um, and they ended up wanting to do more with us. So this was, the, the one thing that's interesting is in the game industry, things keep changing. So, and it's in a weird way. So suddenly you, you're used to working on the spectrum and then someone says, can you make something from the Comet, for the Commodore 64? And you're like, oh, but that's a whole new language. And, and then you go learn that language. And then, then along comes the, the Mega Drive and it's a whole new language again, or the Amiga or the Atari ST. You're, so you're constantly having to learn new languages. Can you imagine that in real life if you were doing business and then you had to sort of learn yeah. Russian and then you had to learn French <laughs> and then you had to learn Spanish? It's it's kind of crazy. And it, and it wasn't that you had to learn that new language and sort of survive. You had to be an absolute expert at that language, right? So you had to be great at it. Um, and so I find that very interesting um, how we had to keep adapting. But yeah, the, um, the Virgin relationship became very, very important in, in my career. And um, we we ended up making a game called um, Supremacy for them on the Amiga, and it was also on the Atari ST. In the in the United States, it was called Overlord, and um, and that was kind of cool because that was a real time strategy game, which we were sort of working out as we went along. How to even make a real time strategy game? What is that? But that was really fun, and um, and ultimately Virgin came back and said, "Look, we have the rights to the Terminator with Orion Pictures. You know, James Cameron's." first Terminator movie, um, would you like to make the game? And we got very excited about that. You can imagine Nick and I were like, oh, this is going to be so great because we're going to be the Terminator and go around and, you know, try to catch Sarah Connor. And and they they said to us, but you can't be the Terminator because we don't have the rights to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so then we said, no problem, we'll be Linda Hamilton. So we'll, we'll be Sarah Connor. And they said, no, we don't have the rights to Linda Hamilton. So... Then we're like, well, who do we play in this game? And and they said, you have to play Kyle Reese, the guy that dies in the movie that, that falls in love with, with Sarah. Um, sorry for the spoilers there. <laughs> it's, it's only been nearly 40 yeah. years. It will be okay. yeah. <laughs> All these years, I hope you've seen the term. Uh, so anyway, it was just funny because I, and this has actually helped me in my career because when I talk to directors, it's like, don't ever, ever um, limit the game just don't do that you have to think about how to license things so that you can you can you know make the game all it can be and because i this is a recurring theme you'll see over time there's there's uh there was a lot of that going on um and so anyway long story short this was this was really a fun time to get to make the terminator but but what happened was um then 
uh, Virgin called me up and said, look, we have a game over in America that we're making for McDonald's that we have to get done. And we want you to get on a plane and fly to America. And we want you to, well, whatever you're earning today, we'll pay you more. We'll give you royalties, whatever you need. Just get on a plane and come work on this game. And so that was kind of fun because I was single at the time. So imagine you're sitting in Egham in Surrey. You you're, think that's where the rest of your life is going to be spent. And then someone out of the blue says, come to California. Um, so I'm like, okay, I'm, uh, you know, I'll go. Um, and, and it ended up, um, Virgin was, uh, set up in a place called Irvine. I didn't even know what Irvine was. I'm like, you know, I thought I was going to Los Angeles. Um, but I ended up in this, mm. it's like Silicon Valley on the South, you know, in Southern California. And, um, and, and right next door was Blizzard, you know, and, uh, Interplay. You have all these cool companies were right there. And so we ended up making this this Terminator game and and getting it out. And then we made the the McDonald's game, which was the one that they really wanted me to get out the door. And that one, it, the McDonald's executives showed up one day to see it and they absolutely hated it. Um, and so we were kind of laughing because, well, you know, they wanted Ronald McDonald in the game, but we hated Ronald McDonald. So we didn't. And in the end, they insisted. So we sort of snuck him in here and there, like waving a flag. I think every, every kid was frightened of Ronald McDonald, yeah, but I knew. Yeah, hated him. Um, so they ended up, we, we shipped the game, and the game won Game of the Year and, uh, mm-hmm. and all kinds of other awards, best music, best graphics. As a result, McDonald's went and made another game um, starring Ronald McDonald called McDonald Land, and that one got panned because the, the articles were like, Ronald Frightwig McDonald um, is in this game. So uh, we felt vindicated, but it was good because that you can imagine you get game of the year on your first game on U.S. soil. They said, please stay, like, please don't leave. And, and I wasn't thinking of leaving, but my house in England was full of cobwebs at that point, mm. which was uh, kind of an interesting problem. You can imagine uh, there's no one taking care of it. It's just sitting there. I locked the door and went to the airport so, um, so I had a pretty, I had to make at some point a decision. Um, I made another game, which was called Cool Spot with Seven Up. Um, yes, and Cool Spot was fun. Um, I I, I kind of look back at this and I'm I'm like apologizing to the industry because we were some of the first people doing ad, advert gaming, where you know McDonald's was starts with the McDonald's M, um, and Cool Spot starts with him surfing in on a on a Seven Up bottle. Um, so, you know, adverts in gaming really sort of began, um, um, but like we, kind of advert games, weren't they? Yeah. yeah um, like in your face, like in your face, you're playing, and, you know, their mascots. Um, and out of all the characters, I think, and all the games, Cool Spot was a, a pretty decent one actually. And, um, you know, that, that kind of surprised a lot of people with those, uh, advertising titles. Yeah, you'd think they would just be the worst games ever, right? And so, mm. yeah, no, we had a lot of fun making it. And what actually occurred is we started to build a team. So you saw a team coming together um, through the McDonald's game, through the uh, the Seven Up game, and then they came to us and said, "Would you be willing to do Aladdin?" And Aladdin was um, going to require serious. Uh, animation chops and our team after the, the people we happened to have on cool spot the lead was a guy called um uh, mike deets 
and um, another guy, Ed Schofield. Those guys were really, really talented. So Disney, however, threw a curveball at us saying, what can we do for you to help you? So instead of like the Terminator where you can't do this and you can't do that, this was uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was involved and he basically said, what, what can Disney do to help? And so, of course, the answer was we wanted the authentic music. We wanted real animation done by Disney feature animation in Florida. And they just like, yep, what else do you need? <laughs> Wait, what? We're going to get that? <laughs> so, Which must yeah. have been remarkable because, I mean, I, I imagine in you know those years leading up to that, it kind of felt like generally games were kind of regarded by companies as a bit throwaway and maybe, you know, not even as important as a toy, but then it suddenly got to this era and suddenly they realized it was a big part of the franchise, I guess. Exactly. So what happened is you would, you would be in a, in a light, I'd been into Disney licensing and you're like sitting in a room with coffee cups and things like that with Disney characters on them. Like that, that's where licensing happens. And they, they thought video games were just like a coffee cup. There was nothing that important. Um, and in certain cases, some of the executives making the decisions had no interest in games. Like they were just too old. And so it took a while. I used to enjoy this because I'd go into these meetings looking at these older executives thinking, you don't care about this industry. You're not going to support this. No one's going to say yes. But what happens is over time, those people move on. And you see the, 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 the people moving in are all, uh, they have kids playing games. They love games. They grew up playing games. And it, and it changed everything. That just literally, just right before my eyes in all of my Hollywood meetings, I watched the, the, the whole industry change and start really embracing um, video games. And so people like um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I think, were way ahead of the crowd um, because, you know, they, were, they, were, they really understood and so to give you a crazy example is I got, um, I got invited to the, the press release, I guess, for the press announcement for Aladdin. And it was at, I think it was at the, um, the CES show in, um, and, uh, um, you know, which is this sort of big place. There was a lot of, um, uh, I think about a thousand press were invited to it. And, and I went and I arrived and I went to the wrong floor in the elevator and the elevator doors open or the lift, as, as you would say in England, um, the lift doors open and imagine the whole floor of the hotel is filled with, with Aladdin characters. Um, wow. and, and I'm like, holy shit, what is this? Cause I mean, I, I'd never, I, we'd never had something like this for a video game. And so you go in this room, there's a thousand press there. You have Jeffrey Katzenberg on stage. You have, Richard Branson on stage, you have the head of Sega has flown in from Japan and all these people, um, you know, that I respected greatly. Um, and then they did this big presentation and then, then the doors open and income all these characters and it sort of give you a taste of what it's like to work with Disney. Um, they think big and, and, uh, and that was a huge hit that game for us. Uh, they ended up making like the mega drive. They had their own box, like the Aladdin box where you had the Aladdin edition and things like that. So it was a wonderful thing to experience and it also meant that when i went uh, i i was sort of i got special access to disneyland and all kinds of benefits um from being involved and then jeffrey katzenberg called me up one day and said would you like to do lion king and in my infinite wisdom i said no <laughs> oh. suddenly i'm not welcome at disneyland <laughs> suddenly it's all over right uh, uh but what happened was at the time I was thinking about um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles again. There was a, 
a long story short on that one, um, my I had made the game, yes, but it turns out that the toys were made by a company in America called Playmates, and they had made like a billion dollars just on those toys. And so they wanted to get in the game industry, and they asked me would I be willing to leave Virgin and work for them and help them build their own video game wing. At the same time, Sega Technical Institute. So Sega, the games like Sonic and things like that that came out of out of um, Sega were done there. And so I would have got to work with Yuji Naka, the, the Sonic guy, um, if I had have gone with a Sega offer. Or I could, of course, just have stayed at Virgin and worked on, on Lion King. So I had to weigh these all up, and I decided that I would take a different choice, which was I went back to Playmates and said, I don't really want to build your company. I want to build my own, but would you be willing to fund it? And uh, and they said, sure. And the understanding was that we'd probably end up making some kind of licensed um, games that relate to their toys. But what happened was we pitched them um, Earthworm Jim, and they really liked it. So we ended up building Earthworm Jim. And, and that was really interesting because that, that led us on a path of instead of licensing in someone else's brand with Earthworm Jim, we actually owned the brand and we got um, it one game of the year as well. And it ended up becoming a toy line and a television show and Halloween masks and lunch baskets and all kinds of different, uh, all these different things. It was kind of a huge title, but also like going back to those, um, kind of Disney day days, like um, when they entered the industry and especially the animation on Aladdin, uh, it was amazing. I remember uh, the animation studio came out, which was also a paint program. And it was like the reaction of gaming fans and around the industry was like, okay, Disney's entered. They've done this really high level animation. It looks like a Disney game and a Disney film, you know? Um, Did you feel that kind of impact with those games and, uh, other people's reactions when it came out because there were ports of all different systems and they all look fantastic. Yeah. What happened was um, I remember uh, this is actually a different thing, which I talk about when I'm talking about business, but I find that learning about different things is really important. Uh, like for example, with podcasting, I want to understand everything about podcasting. So uh, at a technical level, it was the same with Aladdin as when we started to get the Disney animation in the animators would say to me, you seem to really care about our animation. And I'm like, of course I do. I really care. And I, and I, and we would, we would, you know, I would take the time and sitting with them, they would be like, can you try changing this and that? And they would be the timing of frames of animation. If you get it right, look really good. And if you get it wrong, it looks glitchy. And so being willing to take the time to make it look right is something that an animator really appreciates. And it's the same thing with, uh, with the music. Um, actually caring that the music sounds good is interesting because you have to give up more resources in the, in the console. You're saying, you're basically saying, I'm going to give you more room because I want it to sound good. Um, instead of and like it had lyrics on it as well, Did it? On, um, on, on the Aladdin one, I remember it was a uh, singing a whole new world when you kind of loaded it up. <laughs> it was uh, it was a really, really interesting problem because Disney thought that the story mattered. In, in Aladdin. And this was a learning that we had, you know, for example, once upon a time in Agrabah, um, does that matter? And so we, 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 we ran a test with a bunch of kids 
and they were in a room and we were looking through mirrored glass. And, and so you have these people that are, uh, it was really funny uh, thinking about it. They, they were all pressing their thumbs, like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, trying to move as fast as they possibly could through the, um, you know, through the, the story to get to the gameplay. So imagine you, you say, okay, everyone, let's go. And then the thumbs are going and they're just bouncing through the story as fast as they possibly can to get the gameplay. And there was one girl who read all the story. So we pulled her out saying, you know, why did you, why did you read the story? And she said, because I thought there would be something important in there and there wasn't. <laughs> she was annoyed by it. Uh, so, but you see, that's the thing. I, Cause I, I, for years have been getting into those conversations, how important is story in a video game? And, and there are people that think the story is by far the most important part of a video game. And, um, and I've, I disagree. I think the gameplay and, you know, the story is really about you and what you do in the game for that, that to me is more important than, than forcing people to read a whole bunch of text and try to try, you know. And when you couldn't skip it, it was so oh. frustrating as a kid. Yeah, do you remember yeah, that? When you some skip- games were, yeah. <laughs> or, or they spent a bunch of time doing some rendered video and they make you watch it over and over because they yeah. they want you to see the work they did. Yeah, those. I'm not a big fan of that stuff. Um, but but yeah, no, we had a lot of fun with the lad, and, and, it, and it ended up it ended up doing really well. And the, the without a doubt, the animation was. I felt again it was unfair competition. Can you imagine trying to be an animator and, and animating against Disney? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah, good luck with that one. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, you know, in '93 you you set up Shiny Entertainment. I mean, what was kind of the, the process of forming your own company, and, and where did the name come from as well? It's always been, you know, very positive kind of name. Yeah, we couldn't actually think of a name. Um, so I was at Mike Deet's house one day, and we were listening. The, the radio had. Uh, rem song shiny happy people and we ended right. up just saying oh that sounds good let's go with shiny we didn't realize that about 50 percent of the population spells shiny wrong so they put an e in it and um and so that was not good you know once you have a website we didn't have the one with the e in it but the, the name ended up i think working well because it was kind of silly like you know shiny because we we had that attitude of shiny happy people behind the scenes so and something that was going on in our office, which was kind of fun, was we had cartoons playing 24-7. So we had Tex Avery cartoons as inspiration. So imagine you have laser discs and the laser discs are playing these cartoons back to back. That, I think, helped inspire Earthworm Jim a lot, is this slapstick humor. It's something I say to students today. If you're a student thinking about getting into video games, please don't make a first-person shooter. It, you, you know, you're just going to get lost in the noise. And it's really hard to make one that's in any way different from what's been done before. So um, go for humor. Do something funny. There's so few games where you're laughing as you're playing. So, you know, if you get an opportunity to make a game, try humor. You'll see it's a it's a it's like in the movie industry. Um, humor, humor works there, too. So it's one of those things that um, I think we all embrace. I think we all enjoy something that's funny. And then you go back to your flight simulator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're right there because, you know, Earthworm Jimmy, he felt like, you know, it could be a Warner Brothers cartoon. It reminded me a bit of something like, you know, the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, that kind of thing. And, you know, there, there was a lot of kind of cutesy platformers before then. And obviously it seemed like Jim had a lot of attitude as well. How did the character kind of form then and those ideas to make him like an earthworm, for example, where where did that all come from? Well, what happened was we had this uh, guy who applied for a job with us 
through one of the animators. His name was was Doug Tenaple, and Doug um, wanted to come and um, and be a part of our team. So we wanted to give him a test, and and his submission for his test was Earthworm Jim, and we looked at it and thought, what you know, what is this? Uh, Earthworm in a cybernetic suit? That's fantastic. At the time, we were remember uh, we were being funded by a toy company. Now imagine on my right hand, we've got this Earthworm in a cybernetic suit. And on my left hand, we've got things like Knight Rider, the TV show. And so I'm like, hmm, Knight Rider isn't that exciting to us. This We can have a lot of fun with this thing. And then he kept going and he created characters like Professor Monkey for a head, where you have this, this guy um, with a monkey and, and his head, are, the, the two heads are combined. Um, so he's like a mad scientist. I love this stuff. And so I was all in on on going with the wacky character. Now it turns out gameplay wise, this was something that we had done in that second baby game that I talked about with Messiah. Um, I, the reason we, we, we had made a game with a baby is because the concept was um, that you go from weak to strong. This is a cool gameplay mechanic. When imagine you're really tough and you're kicking everyone's butt, but then suddenly you lose all that firepower and you're on, you know, you have to run. Um, that's what that's what happened with Earthworm Jim is you're in this cybernetic suit. You've got a plasma blaster. You can charge that up. Um, and then suddenly it's all taken away from you and you're a naked worm um, and everything hurts. That's a fun gameplay mechanic. Um, and so um, I found myself in a way going back to that over time. I think that's an, that's a fun a fun thing where you feel really tough and then feel really weak. Um, it's a fun thing to, to play with. And the level design, the kind of platform element was completely like turned on its head and uh having different sequences as well like you know flying through the the kind of tunnely uh section and you know um the different like levels of climbing it was it was really well designed and thought about the way it was actually done was we did it without a design document so the game um it's something that i still think if i make uh, another game which i hope to someday i hope to do it the same way, which was we would jump around as the character and say, does that feel right? Um, and adjust it until it feels right. And then we, and, and in a way that determines how far you can jump or what you can do. And, and so in a way the game is designing itself. You, you get an idea for, you know, we're going to be in a glass orb underwater. Okay. Well, what does that feel like? And what, and how big is the space? I don't know. We're going to work it out. How big does the orb need to be and how fast would it move? And you just start building it. And then we in the office are playing it over and over, just going, this feels this feels good, this feels good. And then we're like, no, it's too hard, it's too hard. And then someone completes it and he goes, no, no, you can complete it. And then we're like, really? Like, that seems so hard. And then they they do it over and over and over. And I'm like, okay, fair enough, you can complete it. And it's hard to explain, but you can't write that down. That's You can't have a document that tells you all of that, where someone has all those numbers or has that all thought out. And so in later games, sometimes uh, people have asked me to consult on their games. So I've got to be a fly on a wall, um, seeing somebody else make a game. I once worked on The Simpsons, Simpsons, for example. And when you get to see other teams work, it's interesting because sometimes they have worked it all out on paper. And what happens is when the game gets made, then in a way, there's no time to fix the things that the gamers are saying. So, you know, you would see a gamer... Um, complain about something and instead of saying oh better fix that they would say you know oh they're not a good gamer um and it's like 
wait, what? Do you not hear what they're saying? Like, we got to fix that. That's like, because the camera's wrong or something. Well, we're not changing the camera system, so therefore it must be them. And um, and that that's a problem when you have large teams and, and you know, it costs a lot of money and, and you've just got to get the game done. So I kind of loved those days when you would be like, sure, no problem, I can fix that. And then you just go and fix it. I guess it's kind of like the indie game scene now um, with the kind of innovation and stuff of a smaller team. Like one of the levels that blew my mind was the soil level with the kind of destructible environment. And I think it was like one of the first times I'd actually seen that properly really well done in a game. Was that a tough challenge to program? Yeah. So I had this, um, uh, that was actually my secret weapon was I had this engineer, his name was um, Andy Astor and Andy was basically just this guy who was just an unbelievable engineer that could do anything didn't matter what it was and so i would say to him look i need i need to find a better way to compress all this animation because we need to get a lot of animation into our game so you know let's let's try to find a way to do this and we ended up designing a tool um, to do the compression and he wrote the tool and it was fun because I, I thought I, you can imagine that means I've pigeonholed him in my brain as being a toolmaker guy, but it turns out um, when we were making Earthworm Jim two, he was like, you know, can I take a go at this? Can I try this? And I'm like, well, of course. But it turned out he was awesome, so he did that Lorenzo soil level where the the soil all comes down. It's actually quite hard to do, um, and it was the kind of thing that just watching him start to actually work on a game and then to actually do really hard things with it really impressed me. And so Andy went from being the tool guy to like full team member, you know, game coder. And, uh, and, and he was awesome. So very, very helpful in a way I started, the more he took on, the more this was on Earthworm Jim too, the more he took on, the more I started to think, you know, Hey, I'm going to move over to the dark side of the force and become management and start growing this team. Um, it really which, pushed the Mega Drive. That did like a lot of the features. I, I remember yeah. when it came out. You know, it was a bit later in the life of the Mega Drive, and it was like, wow, <laughs> you could do even mini games and yeah. stuff in it, didn't it? I remember. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of those Nintendo Game and Watch games. So I, I think some of those games were kind of fun for inspiration. There, there was a level in in Earthworm Jim where you, there's a you're, you're bouncing puppies across a screen. And that's actually comes from the idea of a game called Fire. That's a, a little um, Nintendo um, game and watch game where you have people jump out of a building and you're trying to get them across the space. And so we were very inspired by, by other things, but in reality, they would make fun mini games within the game. And, and so that was fun too, just trying different ideas. Well, as you mentioned before, you know, Jim, it became so iconic. He got his own animated TV series. I wish there were two series of that. I mean, how did that kind of come about? And was Shiny involved with the making of it at all? And what did you think of it? TV series was an interesting concept because, again, you're you're licensing out. This is our, our property. So for us to be going that direction was really weird. Um, but you can't actually get a TV ser- series because um, they want you to have some kind of really serious marketing budget for your property. And we wanted to do toys because we were with a toy company and they said, we can't do toys unless there's TV. And so we're like, Hmm, this is interesting. So how about we all have dinner and, um, and we'll do a deal. And the deal was that we would do the games 
you do the toys and you do the TV. And if everyone does that, there's enough marketing to make the whole thing worthwhile. And so that's what we actually did. And Universal Cartoon Studios decided to uh, to make the the TV show. That was just um, that was just fascinating to see that entire process of what it's like to make a video game, um, you know, into a TV show, and all of the steps. And then and then seeing the promotion of it, like we would, I got invited to Universal, and they they. <laughs> It made me laugh. They, they, I think they had a poster up somewhere of Earthworm Jim. Like they put him up somewhere, and you know that tram ride that you do at Universal Studios, where they have the shark and all this stuff that you have yeah. to see. They, they talked about Earthworm Jim <laughs> as part of that ride, but they didn't have any Earthworm Jim props or anything. I thought it was hilarious. They're just trying to slip it in, you know. Oh, is that Earthworm Jim over there? And there's nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Blinking, you miss it. It's just an earthworm on the floor. <laughs> it was just so funny, but but uh, anyway, long story short, that was a great time uh, getting to see, you know, the making of that, and we ended up getting offered a movie deal, but the movie deal was with Sony, and mm. Universal wouldn't give up the rights, so we never got to do the Earthworm Jim movie. Um, but but at, at the time, that was. It was definitely, you know, we ended up getting in, in America, you have fast food restaurants like Carl's Jr. and Del Taco, of course, McDonald's. Um, but we ended up getting um, the equivalent of a Happy Meal, you know, like you get you're the toy in the bag and you're the you know, you're on their their actual bag that they give to kids. Um, mm. And we did that with Del Taco and with Carl's Jr. here in the U.S. So you just started to see Earthworm Jim all over the place. It was really interesting. Uh, you know, that, that whole process. Well, obviously, there was a big change in the industry in the mid-90s, you know, particularly when the PlayStation arrived. You know, everything suddenly had to become 3D graphics. I mean, how did Shiny adapt to that then, that big change in, you know, graphical style? Well, that was that was a nightmare for me. So I'm in an office with people with pencils in their hands, and I'm like, we're going 3D. Um, I'm going to start buying silicon graphics computers, which were $25,000 a time. And, and so I was spending a lot of money on, on the hardware and software that you need for 3D. And the, um, the team didn't want didn't to do it. They weren't interested. In America, they have this uh, bumper sticker that says, you can take my gun from my cold, dead hand. And that's basically uh, the way it was with the animators. Like, you can take my pencil from my cold, dead hand. I'm not going to start doing 3D. And, um, and that, was a, that was an interesting problem because... I, uh, the industry seemed to be going that direction and I was very worried about it. And, you know, <laughs> you can imagine what happened. You know, that engineer, Andy Astor, that I told you about 3D? That's no problem. <laughs> I <can't laughs> <just. laughs> He's like, what's the problem? Like, I can do 3D. And off he goes and starts doing 3D. And then we hired in another engineer. His name was, um, um, uh, was it Michael Brownlow? And he joined and, and he was incredible as well. And so suddenly we made a game, MDK. Do you remember MDK by any yeah, chance? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, third-person shooter. Yeah, good game. Yeah, which was the first game with a sniper rifle. So we were excited about this new mechanic of having a sniper rifle in a game. And um, and so, you know, you could shoot something in the in the eye from a mile away. How cool would that be? And so this um, this game... MDK started to come about and we realized, you know what, I think we're going to survive this move to 3D. And so we had, we, we realized something really quite interesting, which was this idea that you would be able to 
um, sell a game through devices instead of to, to directly to consumers. So what that meant was when the iMac came out, you know, the very first Apple iMac, it had a game pre-installed, which was was MDK. And um, it also, you know, NVIDIA, I think it was 3DFX at the time, actually. 3DFX were, were um, packaging in MDK. If you bought joysticks from Microsoft that had MDK with it, um, certain computers had it um, installed as well. So ultimately... You know, everywhere you went at the time, MDK was was being installed. And uh, we also, at the time, because 3D was a new thing, everyone was trying to work out, is this a good 3D computer or is this a, a lame one? How would you know the difference? So Andy, being Andy, said, oh, I'll come up with a score, which we can use to help you work out if it's a good computer. And we just gave it a score of of like um, zero to 100 was, was the plan. And it was really funny because... It, at that time, when you get reviews of computers, they were super technical about burst, read, write, speeds, and all of this stuff. And and consumers don't understand that. And so the, the, to say this computer is a 73 and that's a 92, that that was actually very easy for the, for, for the public to understand. And so magazines started to actually use that as their, their way of reviewing hardware um, was the MDK score. And uh, that was really fun because sometimes we'd hear like someone's just got 104 and you're like, but what is that? <laughs> how is that? How is that possible? Like, what hardware does this guy have? Um, and that was... That it was, was changing fast there, wasn't it then? It was, you know, new stuff coming out all the time. Yeah. And so that, I mean, you can imagine that that was the intent of the number was to make you interested in knowing how you could get a 104 or a 123. Like, how is that even possible? What is that? And um, And so... Yeah, that was uh, that we made it into 3D, and we we didn't look back. We were we were like we're gonna we're gonna not only survive in the space, but I think we're gonna thrive in it. And, and so you know, Shiny continued to grow. Why did you decide to sell the company then? Well, actually, the selling of of Shiny happened um, at the beginning of 3D. So it was at that it was at that moment when I I sort of panicked and realized you know I don't know if if this team is going to be able to handle this. And, uh, and and make this move. So I, I literally was, uh, do I want to keep buying this 3D hardware and, and cross my fingers and hope we're going to make it? Because, you know, at the time you, you, you wouldn't know. So that's when I sold to Interplay. Um, but in reality, that's when we, we, we ended up leveling up and going hardcore into 3D. And we even made a game, um, which I thought was funny, was RC Stunt Copter. I don't know if you heard of that one, but we made it. I got into as a hobby flying remote control helicopters. And that was another 3D game that we ended up making. But it was using, I looked at the PlayStation controller and it had two little joysticks on it. And I'm like, that looks just like the same controller you use for flying remote control helicopters and planes. Yeah. So, <laughs> so why, don't we, uh, why don't we do that? And um, And we ended up, you know, actually making that, that game. And it was, that was a really fun little side project. Like just, a, you know, we're, we had our core stuff that we wanted to do and then we just made some stuff for the, for the heck of it. Um, just cause you know, why not? Um, but, but definitely the 3d was the, was the reason that I sold at the time, but in a way having interplay behind us added a lot more oomph because we added more marketing and, and uh, the licensing out abilities and things like that. Well, David, honestly, we could talk to you all day. You know, you've got such an interesting career and such a, a fascinating history behind you. You know, we appreciate you're a busy guy, though. And I mean, obviously, since then, you know, your career has gone from strength to strength. 
What are you working on at the moment then? And is there anything we should look out for? Well, yeah, the last thing I did in, in the game industry that was big was uh, was cloud gaming. And um, that company ended up getting bought by PlayStation. And during that time, I, I sort of decided I was going to retire. I, I think I think it was time to retire. And so, and of course, the Matrix with, uh, with, uh, with Atari. So those two things led me to go, maybe it's time to retire. And I, I got the world's best man cave over here with um, woodworking and metalworking and 3D printing and I had a photo studio and everything else. And so I got really interested in um, in learning about photography. And um, as a result, I started taking pictures of social media influencers because I realized no one cared about my pictures. But if I had a social media influencer in there, then you know people would want to see those pictures. And, and that led me into um, wanting to know more about the space and getting into e-commerce. And I ended up uh, co-founding a company where we're helping brands collaborate with each other and with celebrities and influencers. And we now have 30,000 brands using this this technology. And so I don't oh, know wow. what happened. I'm supposed to be retired. I should be <laughs> sitting with my feet up playing games. Instead, I have a, a company with, you know, 40 employees building futuristic e-commerce technology. Um, so I don't know what happened. It was a it just happened. And, um, and I'm enjoying it, to be honest, because it's made me much cooler for my daughter because now we're dealing with all these cool brands. Um, so, you know, she wasn't so into the video games, but brands is interesting. So um, so I've kind of enjoyed learning about that space. And I think that's part of what this is all about. Um, game industry people, I think, are you, you have to innovate or you die in our industry. Mm. And so in a way, when you go into another industry, and if that's your mentality of let's innovate, I think it's actually kind of, it's, it makes it kind of fun. I, I believe we could move into just about, I think you could take really good video game people and move them into any industry. And I think they would start, they would come from a different vector and have different ideas and thoughts. Um, and and so I think it's actually very healthy and I'm enjoying it. But anyway, so somehow, I don't know how, but I'm in e-commerce. Um, our company's called Cairo. Our website is get C-A-R-R-O.com. So get caro.com. David, long may the innovation continue. And I do hope you get to put your feet up at some point though. Please, <laughs> but it's please. Been- <laughs> game, so I want to put my feet up. Just relax. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. This has been many, many years since what, like 1982, I think. Um, yep. I, yeah. I could use a, I could use a break at some point. But anyway, what a ride. This has been fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time. 